You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Morning, everybody. So um, I am with you for the next three weeks. Um, Garrett had mentioned two weeks last week, but I'm sorry. You gave me for an extra week. Um, and, uh, well, anyway, let's pray, and then we'll get into what we're going to talk about. But we're going to be talking about the same thing, epiphany, over the next couple of weeks. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for the time uh, that you've given us together this morning, and we pray that uh, your spirit would be at work among us and in us as we look to your word. Uh, we pray that you would <clears throat> make known yourself to us and that we would um, walk in your way. Uh, teach us what that means. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the Christian calendar, uh, between January 6th, which was Friday before last, and February 22nd, which is the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, uh, we are celebrating the season of Epiphany. Uh, the word epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphania, which means to make known or to reveal. And so uh, epiphany is called epiphany because this is the season on the church calendar when we celebrate the revelation or the making known of the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, or we might also say that the Greek word that is translated Gentiles in the New Testament is the word ethnos. It can also be translated as peoples or nations. And sometimes I want to specify that because I think sometimes we can get that mixed up and we can maybe associate Gentiles with, uh, I don't know, Romans or some specific version of Gentilism, but it just stands for peoples or uh, nations. Um, uh, and so uh, in, in the scriptures, this is the term that's used to describe those who were not originally uh, a part of the holy nation or called to be a part of the holy nation but are now being called to be a part of the holy nation because of the advent of Jesus and in church tradition epiphany focuses on the story of the magi as the first Gentiles to acknowledge that Jesus was king their story is celebrated as kind of the fulfillment of God's promise to bring light to the nations but in reality that's what epiphany is all about but in reality, the significance of Epiphany can't really be summed up by a single event. Epiphany really needs to be understood as the culmination of a centuries-long story that is still finding its fulfillment even today. It doesn't end with the Magi, but it's still going on. And so over the next three weeks, rather than spending our time focusing on the Gospels and the fulfillment of God's promise to bring light to the nations, which was what the church has traditionally done, during the season of Epiphany, I'm messing with tradition today, uh, but instead of doing that, I want us to go back to the story, all the way back to the beginning of the story, to see how this promise of God bringing light to the nations took shape within the context of the Hebrew scriptures in particular. And I, I want us to go back and consider how God was at work from the very beginning of his engagement with the people of Israel to bring light to the nations. And I also want us to examine something about how that light was designed to manifest itself among and through the people of God to the rest of the nations of the earth. Now, before we do that, let me just say that I think that the idea of God raising up a people, or the, God, the idea of God raising up a holy nation to be a light to the nations is significant, particularly for the modern church, because there's been a tendency 
uh, perhaps because of the Reformation or perhaps because of our focus on individualism and independence in the United States in particular. I don't know all of the exact reasons why this has happened, but there's been a tendency to speak of the gospel in terms primarily of its personal benefits. Uh, Within an American evangelical context in particular, there's been a lot of talk about the importance of accepting Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. Uh, In large part, we framed our presentation of the gospel in very individualistic terms and our acceptance of the gospel in very individualistic terms. We talk a lot about obtaining forgiveness of our personal sin and you know we worry sometimes we worry a lot about going us personally go am I going to go to heaven when I die and and I don't mean to suggest that the gospel doesn't have any personal significance. Uh, I think it does but frankly I think that because of our hyper concentration on the personal aspects of the gospel we've tended to ignore the significance of what we celebrate at Epiphany. See what Epiphany reminds us of is that since Yahweh initially stooped down to redeem what had been broken by sin and death in all the world, his plan has always been to redeem not just individual human beings, but to redeem the nations. He's always been about the work of saving peoples. His work, in other words, is much broader in its scope than we sometimes imagine it to be. And so again, that scope is really what we're going to explore today and then a little bit over the next few weeks as well as we celebrate Epiphany. Now, we're certainly not the only people in history who've needed to be reminded of uh, the scope of God's redemptive work. Isaiah reminded Israel themselves of the scope of God's work when they had lost their way as well, although Israel tended to view Uh, God's work of redemption, not as an individual initiative, but more as an initiative that was meant to save one nation rather than all the nations of the earth. They had a tendency to focus on uh, God's concern for Israel to the exclusion of the rest of the nations. But because of their narrow view of Yahweh's work of redemption, the prophets were sent, at least in part, to adjust their understanding of God's purpose in choosing them. One example of that is in Isaiah 49, where Isaiah speaks in Yahweh's voice or on Yahweh's behalf as he describes Yahweh's purpose in selecting Israel to be a holy nation. If you go back to read Isaiah chapter 49, there's some interplay here between Isaiah speaking about himself as the servant of God and between Isaiah speaking about the nation as the servant of God. And of course, we know that later Jesus is talked about as the servant of God. So there's, you know, there are a lot of ways, different ways to interpret this passage, but this is one of the things Uh, Isaiah says about the scope of God's plan to redeem the nations. Verse 6 of Isaiah 49. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, Yahweh's saying through Isaiah, I haven't just selected Israel as my only holy nation only so that I can save them. They're a small and insignificant nation in the grand scheme of things. In fact, uh, I think it's in around Deuteronomy 8 through 10, somewhere in there, God speaks specifically through Moses about that to Israel. He's like, I'm not saving you because you're numerous. I'm I'm saving you for the complete opposite reason, that you're insignificant, because I want to do something great, and I don't want people to think that it's happened through this great nation, but that it's happened by my hand. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Again, there's this implication here that Yahweh is setting out to do something much larger in its scope than just 
bringing salvation to individuals or bringing salvation to a single nation. What he's really setting out to do is to redeem the nations and to save the world from the awful mess that we have gotten ourselves into because we have abandoned his way. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can lose sight of God's promise to redeem the, the brokenness of our world. Um, I see the, the brutality and the destructiveness of war, and I'm disheartened. Um, I witness the seemingly endless cycle of gun violence in what seems like every corner of our nation. And I honestly sometimes think to myself, I, I, I really struggle to imagine how that cycle is going to be broken. Um, I see the, the polarization of politics and the hatred and the vitriol that are poured out from people on the opposite sides of the spectrum. And it's difficult for me to envision a way in which the nations can be brought to peace. In fact, sometimes it's difficult for me to envision a way in which our own nation can be brought to peace. I see the great distance between those that we might consider to be filthy rich and those on the other end of the spectrum who struggle to acquire just the very basic necessities of life. And it's hard to see a way out of a system and a cycle that has produced over the history of, of mankind so much inequity. In the midst of so much brokenness, it's easy to forget the scale of God's promise. But friends, that's why I need Epiphany. See, what I'm reminded of in Epiphany is that Yahweh's plan is a plan that doesn't just bring light to individuals or even to single nations, but instead what Yahweh has set out to do is to actually bring redemption to the nations to bring righteousness and justice and peace to a world that is broken through his own incarnation and the person and work of Jesus, but also through the witness and the work of a holy people who have been formed into his image by his Holy Spirit. Isaiah says that it's too small of a thing to understand the gospel in any other terms than that. And so over the next few weeks, I want us to examine the story of God's initiative particularly as it's unveiled in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we'll look a lot at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, as well as Isaiah. But I want us to look at those passages in the Hebrew Scriptures so that we can develop an appreciation for what we're really celebrating when we celebrate Epiphany. The scope of God's plan is really revealed first in the Scriptures to Abram. Uh, within the context of the city or the kingdom of Babylon or the city of the kingdom of Babel, it can be translated both ways and is if you read different versions of Genesis chapter 11. But within the context of this community, Babylon, that eventually comes to represent the way of nations, Yahweh initiates his redemptive plan through this one seemingly very insignificant and kind of timid individual. Now Fred talks about this a lot, but in many ways the story of the Hebrew scriptures can be understood as a, and the story of the scriptures in general, not just the Hebrew scriptures, but the story of the scriptures can be understood as the story of two different types of kingdoms. On the one hand, we have the stories of the kingdoms of men and how they operate. Uh, they are represented most prominently in the Hebrew scriptures by Babylon and Egypt and Assyria and then by Rome when we get into the New Testament. In many ways, Babylon, which is the first of those kingdoms which is identified in the scriptures all the way back in Genesis chapter 10, in many ways, Babylon comes to represent, ultimately represent, the way of all of those different kingdoms. Babylon is used by Peter in his first letter, for example, as well as by John in the book of Revelation to describe the kingdoms of men that stand in opposition to the kingdom or the kingdoms of God. That's why Fred talks all the time about Babylon. Uh, it's a scriptural idea. John says that Babylon has seduced all the nations and all the kings of 
of the earth. I think that's in Revelation chapter 18. If it's not, it's chapter 17. And so consequently, Babylon comes to represent the way of human kingdoms. But throughout the narrative of the scriptures, those kingdoms that are represented by Babylon are identified by one predominant characteristic. Human kingdoms in the scriptures are characterized by fear or by paranoia. Most often that presents as fear of being conquered or fear of losing land or wealth or power or position. Human kings and kingdoms consistently are portrayed in the scriptures as terrified of becoming insignificant and obsolete. And that fear manifests itself through those kingdoms and the types of things that we commonly think of as wickedness or evil. The fears of human kings manifest as violence and oppression and grasping, uh, grasping for wealth, grasping for land, grasping for political position, grasping for a great name, grasping for security and pleasure and significance. Um, in many ways, human history, apart from God's work of redemption, can be described by that single word, uh, grasping, and the fear that I will lose whatever it is that I'm trying to grasp. All of these manifestations of grasping characterize the nations. All of these manifestations lead to the type of warring and injustice and hatred and dissension that fall under the umbrella of what's labeled, particularly in the prophets, as darkness or rebellion or evil. But all of these manifestations, the scripture suggests, are grounded in fear. We see that at first in the Tower of Babylon or the Tower of Babel where the people build a city and a tower because they're afraid of being scattered. Their motivation for building the, uh, the building of defenses and making a great name for themselves is based in fear. That's why they build the tower and the city walls. They're grasping for security. But that same paranoia that drives the first of the human kingdoms in the scriptures appears in other contexts as well. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, for example, Pharaoh is paranoid and afraid because of the rate at which the Hebrews have grown as a people. He's afraid that they're going to rebel and take over. And so he forces them into slavery that becomes more and more brutal during the course of the story of the Exodus because he's afraid of losing the power on which, onto which he's grasping. In Matthew's account of the Magi, which is what we celebrate again at Epiphany, but in Matthew's account, after the Magi found and worshipped Jesus and returned home without going back to Herod to tell him, uh, tell him where the child was, because he evidently perceived the child to be a rival to his throne, and like Pharaoh, feared losing his grasp of power, what did Herod do? You know the story. He had all the male children in the region who were two years old and under put to death. It seems especially violent and heinous, but it's just another real demonstration of the way that nations and their rulers work because of fear. We see it today. From what we encounter in the scriptures to what we watch on the nightly news, this way of fear that ultimately leads to violence and unjust economic practices, to militarism and oppressive legal codes, this way that leads to grasping for control of other people, all of this is part of what is identified in the scriptures as the way of nations and their kings. This is the way that human kingdoms operate. Now, we can live into this way on a personal level. Um, I don't want to dismiss that idea. Every one of us has a little bit of, I want to be a king inside of us, or I want to be a queen for the rest of you. But we can live into this way on a, on a personal level 
Um, I can live into this way in relation to my neighbor and it can cause me to be paranoid. Uh, it can cause me to do violence to him or to seek con to control him or to take advantage of him. It can cause me to hoard my possessions rather than being willing to share with my neighbor who's in need. I, I don't mean to dismiss the individual implications of this way. This way definitely manifests itself in our person-to-person -person relationships. In fact, probably all of the problems that we have with interpersonal relationships in one way or another boil down to the idea that we all want to be kings. But the scriptures in large part focus on what the result of living into this way looks like for communities and peoples. Again, this is what the scriptures describe as the way of nations or the way of Gentiles. We read the New Testament, you see the word Gentiles. Paul will say things like in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the, the futility of their thinking and the darkness of their understanding. Well, translate that the next time you read it in your head as the nations, because that's what he's talking about. You should no longer walk as nations and their kings do in the futility and the darkness of their understanding, because the gospel is calling you into a, dis a different way. This is what the scriptures describe when they talk about the way of the kings and the nations and the Gentiles. And this is the reason why the nations need to experience the blessing and the light that Yahweh has revealed through the gospel. This is why the authors of the New Testament spend so much time talking about the Gentiles. Epiphany, then, is such a big deal because it celebrates the inauguration of a kingdom that stands in contrast to the fearful way of nations and all, of the, manifest, all the manifestations of evil that are birthed from that fear. But that all begins, the kingdom of God is introduced with Abram or as he's later called, Abraham. In Abraham, Yahweh selects a man and ultimately a people through whom he's going to redeem creation. He calls Abram out of Babylon, or out of the land of the Chaldeans, as we're told in Genesis 15, 7. Chaldeans is just another word for Babylonians, so he's, he's calling, them out of, calling uh, Abraham very specifically out of Babylon. He calls a Abraham out of this nation that comes to represent all that has been corrupted in his creation, and he sets out to create a holy people who will stand in contrast to the way of the nations. And right from the beginning, Abraham is characterized by something that is utterly different than what the Babylonians had been characterized. Rather than living from a position of fear, Abraham is described as a man who lived by trust, a man who lived by faith. But again, even at the very beginning of the story, God makes it clear that he's creating this new community of people through Abraham's descendants so that he might ultimately bless all of the nations who have been seduced by Babylon's way by showing them a way that contrasts with the way of fear. In Genesis 12, as Yahweh calls Abram, he says, and I want you to pay attention to what's happening here, right? So he calls Abram, Genesis 12. Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel and, and, uh, sorry, and the people being afraid of getting scattered. And then Abraham appears, and God's first words to Abraham are, go out from your land. And so Babylon's saying, ah, I don't want to scatter from my land. I, I'm grasping for this. And, and God's message to Abraham is immediately, hey, uh, why don't you volunteer through your trust in me to be scattered from your land? Go out from your land, the land of the Chaldeans, the land of the Babylonians. Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. I will make you, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. It's going to rest in me, not in your walls and your towers and your cities. 
And then in, clo- in closing that promise, at the end of verse 3, he says, all the peoples, and I want you to remember again, the Gentiles, the nations, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Again, what I want us to recognize is that the promise whose fulfillment we celebrate in Epiphany begins all the way back with Abram, when Yahweh encounters this man of faith and calls him out of Babylon in both a geographical and political sense, but also in a spiritual sense, so that he might become the leader of a holy nation who will demonstrate a different way of being, and in so doing, will become a light and a blessing to the nations. Now, with that as our backdrop, I want us to jump ahead in the story to what might rightly be considered the next crucial step in God's plan to redeem the nations. I want us to look at at portions of Exodus 19 and 20 for the second half of our time together. After Abraham is called, his people ultimately end up as slaves in Egypt. We know that. Then they find themselves uh, under the thumb of Pharaoh. And and just like we described earlier, Pharaoh treats them harshly. He does what human kings and kingdoms do. It's not really all that unusual. Because he fears the Hebrews and the rate at which they've multiplied, he enslaves them and he makes their situation more and more difficult so that ultimately in their desperation, they cry out to the God of Abraham and the God of Abraham hears their cry and he delivers them. And this deliverance of God's people from Pharaoh and from Egypt becomes the single most important event in all of Hebrew history when it comes to the people understanding who Yahweh is. Through the Exodus, Yahweh becomes known to his people as the God who hears and the God who delivers the weak and the oppressed. But what I want us to recognize is that the result of the people crying out to Yahweh and Yahweh hearing their cry and delivering them is that just as God had called Abram out of Babylon, Yahweh calls Abraham's descendants in both a geographical and political sense as as well as in a uh, spiritual sense, he calls Abraham's descendants out of Egypt. Now, for Abraham, that different way that he's called into is described as the way of faith. After it's said of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, that he believed Yahweh and it was credited to him as righteousness, Yahweh reminds Abraham in Genesis 15, 7 that he had called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans or out of Ur of the Babylonians. And we we typically would interpret that, I guess, as a geographical calling. But there are some spiritual overtones there, particularly when we consider how New Testament writers interpret this this concept of Babel or uh, Babylon. But he calls them out of Ur of the uh, Chaldeans to give him a land to possess. And we'll talk about the significance of the land that Yahweh uh, gave to Abraham's descendants next week, especially how the land was to be used as a basis for being light and blessing uh, the nations. But again, from a spiritual perspective, Abraham was called out of the land of the Babylonians and out of the way of fear and the resulting rebellion that came from the land of the lap, uh, and the way of the Babylonians to live a life of trust in Yahweh. Now, after Abraham's descendants, uh, the people of Israel, are called out of Egypt, we could still say that they were called to a life of faith or trust in Yahweh as their defender and their protector, but we might also say that After the exodus, the call for the people to leave Egypt in a spiritual sense wasn't just a call to faith in Yahweh, but it was also a call to worship and remembrance. Uh, The book of Exodus is an account of how within the context of an oppressive and brutal nation and its ruler, Yahweh introduces himself as holy among the nations, 
Uh, he's holy or he's set apart in a way that contrasts with both Egypt's rulers, who were the pharaohs, but also in a way that contrasts with Egypt's gods. For example, whereas Pharaoh is described in the Exodus as one who refused to listen to the cries of the Hebrews, you remember when they cried out to him, he actually made their work harder. He didn't pay any attention to them. Pharaoh is introduced to us in that way in the Exodus, but Yahweh is first identified in Exodus as the one who heard the cries of the, Egyptian, I mean, the Israelite slaves and had compassion on them. Whereas Pharaoh was brutal and sought to oppress the Hebrew slaves, Yahweh delivers them from their slavery and gives them rest. Uh, Sabbath and the rest that is associated with Sabbath is contrasted within the context of the Exodus with the restlessness and the exhaustion and the burden-bearing that was Egyptian slavery. Whereas Pharaoh used his power to make a great name for himself through his extravagant building projects, just like the people at the Tower of Babel, by the way, Yahweh is identified through the Exodus as one whose mighty hand was used to act not in its own interest, but in the interest of those who had been enslaved. He's introduced to them as the rescuer of the weak and the oppressed. And then finally, whereas the gods of the Egyptians were seen as gods who sanctioned the power and the arrogant actions of oppressive kings, Pharaoh himself was even viewed as a deity at different times in Egyptian history. Uh, but whereas Pharaoh was a manifestation of the way that the Egyptians viewed their gods, Yahweh introduces himself to the Israelites as the God of heaven and earth who comes to the aid not of the powerful and the influential and the rich, but as the one who comes to the aid of the poor and the powerless, even to the aid of the slave. See, everything about Yahweh from the very beginning of the scriptures contrasts with the kings and the gods of the nations. And it's out of this context that Yahweh begins to form a people who will ultimately give birth to the fulfillment of his promise to bring light and blessing to the nations. It's out of the context of the paranoia and fear and violence and oppression and self-centeredness and grasping of the nations, specifically Egypt and Babylon, that Yahweh begins to introduce a way that will redeem the earth. But the way that he introduces isn't just a set of beliefs or an articulation of doctrine. No, when Yahweh sets out to redeem the nations from their way, he forms a people who intentionally remember what he's like and become an embodiment of his holy way. His new way of being takes on flesh and blood in a visible people. In order to be a light to the peoples, Yahweh sets out to establish an alternative and tangible community who will live into his design because they have experienced his nature and will remember how he is holy among the kings and the gods of the earth. In Exodus 19, Moses receives a word from the Lord regarding God's purpose in delivering the Israelites from their oppression in Egypt. I want you to listen to what he says. Some of this ought to be a little bit familiar to you, at least some of the language Beginning in verse 3 of Exodus 19, it says, Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. Verse 4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession. And out of all peoples, although all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom. You will be my kingdom. This different holy people. You will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Consider the context. 
I, I really honestly don't think we can fully understand the scope of the gospel without considering the backdrop of the nations that exist very early on uh, in the Hebrew scriptures and what they were like. Because God is very, he's using language that makes it clear that he's calling the people out of the way of Egypt and Babylon. This statement about Israel being chosen as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which is used again by Peter to help us identify who we are as the church, this statement within its original context is a precursor for the giving of the law of Moses. In the very next chapter, in Exodus chapter 20, Yahweh will begin to articulate some of the ways in which he's calling the holy nation to be holy. And we'll actually look at some of the commands that Yahweh gives in the law next week so that we can get an understanding of what holiness was supposed to look like, at least within their context. We'll especially focus on how Yahweh calls the holy nation to stand out as different with regard to the way that they view their property and their possessions. But what I want us to recognize as we draw our time kind of to its close, don't get too excited, but as we draw our, our time kind of to its close, what I want to recognize this morning is that the law or the, the guidance that God gives to form a holy nation that will become a light to the nations, the law is anchored in worship. And this is why I said that whereas Abraham was called to a life of faith, you know, we could say that Israel was called to a life of worship. Um, before Israel could become holy, they had to fix their worship. Now, that may seem a little bit strange. Um, apart from understanding the greater context of what Yahweh's doing, this may seem like a little bit of an egotistical move on Yahweh's part. I want you to come out and worship me. But when we consider the law from a much broader perspective, which we're going to do in a small way uh, next week, we come to understand that worship had a very particular purpose for the holy nation. In many ways, it could be said that worship for Israel was all about remembrance. Worship was about recounting, first of all, the power of God. And secondly, worship was about recounting how God had used that power to bring about goodness for the weak and the oppressed and the insignificant nation of Israel. And the purpose of that remembrance was to bolster the people's trust in Yahweh's holy way of doing things against uh, trusting in the nation's way of doing things. In Exodus 19, as Yahweh calls the people to be a holy nation, he begins to call them to holiness by reminding them of his own holiness. And in a culture where the gods of the nations were represented by oppressive leaders, Yahweh begins to set himself apart by caring for the weak and even carrying the weak. He reminds them there in Exodus 19.4, we read it earlier, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In essence, through this call and through what he recall, or reminds them to remember during this call in Exodus chapter 19, through all of this as it's going on, Yahweh is saying, look, I'm calling you to be holy, but you'll only be holy in the way that I'm calling you to be holy when you remember what I'm like. I am the protector of the weak. I'm the one who carried the weakest and the smallest and the most insignificant of nations on eagles' wings and delivered them from the power of the most dominant nation on all the earth. And they're called in Exodus 19, Yahweh essentially says, Israel will be holy, Israel will be a blessing and a light to the nations when rather than relying on the wealth and defenses and oppression and self-aggrandizement of the nations, they mirror the actions of their king with respect to the weak and the oppressed. Israel will be holy when they become like I am. And so that because their holiness is contingent on them remembering his nature, Yahweh calls them to worship 
him through remembrance. The very first command that he gives in the Ten Commandments, uh, in that very next chapter, he starts by saying, I am the Lord, or the Hebrew word there, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. See, because Yahweh understood that he was unique among the gods, because he understood that he was the only God who stood on the side of the weak and heard the cries of the oppressed, because he knew that following other gods would result in the people acting like the other nations, he says to them at the very beginning of the law, before anything else, you must worship me. You must remember what I have done and how I have acted so that you are formed by the story of who I am. You must worship me so that you can become like me. Who you are has to be rooted in who I am. But he doesn't just begin the law in this way. He actually comes back to this idea repeatedly, over and over again, as Yahweh gives very specific and very tedious, very practical commands. He'll anchor many of those very specific commands in a remembrance of who he has been to them. In Leviticus 19, for example, as he's laying out commands related to the justice and righteousness that must exist among them, Yahweh says this, You shall do no wrong in judgment, uh, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, a just hen. Um, I was thinking about you know, some of the ways that we measure things in our society, and all I could really think of was the produce department, and maybe uh, at, you know, when you measure uh, lumber at uh, Home Depot or something. That's how practical he, practical he gets with the law. When you go to the store, in order to demonstrate my righteousness... I want you to have just measurements. Um, we don't think of that as maybe all that big of a deal. I, you know, I steal a grape. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. <laughs> um, but he's saying be, be just in these small things. And then as he concludes that command, he, he concludes it by saying, don't forget, I am Yahweh, your God. I'm not the gods of the nations who brought you out of Egypt. And I think when he says, I brought you out of Egypt, of course he's talking about that in a geographical sense. But if we realize the context of the entire scriptures, I think we have to also interpret that as, I'm bringing you out of Egypt in a spiritual sense as well, and out of the unjust ways of the nations and their kings. They were supposed to act in a righteous way toward one another. They were supposed to avoid swindling one another and stealing from one another because of who Yahweh had been to them. He had protected them when they had been grossly misused. And now he was saying to them, because I protected you, you protect one another. Leviticus 25, as Yahweh lays out guidelines of special concern for the poor, he says in verses 35 through 38, if your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him as a foreigner or temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. Do not profit or take interest from him that's the most un-american statement in the bible maybe <laughs> do not take do not profit or take interest from him but fear your god and let your brother live among you you are not to lend to him your silver with interest or to sell him your food for profit now i'm not suggesting that uh, we try to uh, our aim is is necessarily to put laws into act uh, or, or into effect that uh, drown out you know, interest and profit, those types of things. But what I'm suggesting is that among the holy people of God, this type of attitude ought not to exist. That's what he's, you know, I think we try to 
sometimes take the old covenant law and apply it to America or our nation, and it really applies to the holy nation. And so we have to live this first before we can be a light to the nations. And Yahweh says as he's giving that command, just as he said with that first command, he closes it by saying, uh, don't charge interest, don't sell to your brother for profit. I am Yahweh your God, listen to the language, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and be your God. Again, their treatment of the poor was to be guided by their remembrance of how Yahweh had treated them when they had been poor in the land of Egypt. Their holiness, the way that they acted within their community, the way that, in which they were to be set apart from the nations so that they could ultimately be a light to the nations was to be based in how Yahweh had acted toward them. It wasn't about comparing. I'm not going to give to you because you don't give to me. I'm not going to give to you because you've made some mistakes and screwed up your life. It was about, I'm going to give because Yahweh has given. And this even extended beyond their own community. In regards to foreigners, it's said in Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34, when a foreigner lives with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You must regard the foreigner who lives with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as you love yourself. For you are foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. I'm not those detestable gods and kings that you came away from. If we had time, we could look at example after example of how worship and remembrance of Yahweh for who he was and how he had cared for them was to be a catalyst for the holiness of the people. But then even beyond the call and even beyond the commandments, as Yahweh forms their liturgy, as he gives them their forms of worship, all of those liturgical forms are centered around remembering who Yahweh had been to them. And we don't have time, don't get worried, because I'm not going to start reading a bunch of other stuff. We don't have time to go through it. But just to mention a couple of things very quickly, Passover was designed to be an annual remembrance of the actions of Yahweh to deliver them from the hand of an oppressive emperor whose power they had at one time seen, had one time seen as inconquerable to them. Sabbath was a reminder that the God of Abraham gave them rest and provided for their needs as they roamed the desert rather than requiring them to wear themselves out to avoid harsher and har harsher treatment as they had been forced to do in Egypt. The other feasts were intended to serve as a reminder of Yahweh's faithful provision and care when they were an insignificant people wandering alone in the wilderness. But again, the holy nation was formed by worship and worship was formed by their remembrance of who Yahweh was and what he had done for them. As they remembered him and honored him for the way that he was holy among the gods and the kings of the nations, they would themselves as a people become holy among the nations. And as they themselves, the community of God's people became holy, they would be a light to the very nations that they had been called out of. If you want to change America, be a holy people as the church. Out of the self-centered and idolatrous nations who were motivated by fear, they were called to be a people who trusted the God who had proven himself faithful and mighty and compassionate through his deliverance of them so that they could live into and embody his way. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.